the United Methodist Church is experiencing a critical moment in time over issues of gender and sexuality. Some local churches are discerning whether to continue their affiliation with the United Methodist Church, and the debate has become so intense that it has spilled over into the consciousness of the general public. You may already know that, but what you may not know is how we got here. How a simple question from a man from Indiana combined with a single phrase from a man from Texas changed the course of history for the United Methodist Church. We'll have their stories and more of how we got here right here on this special edition of The Untidy Methodist. The 2019 special called General Conference of the United Methodist Church was supposed to settle everything. How we approach same-sex marriage, whether to ordain gay pastors or not, and all the other attendant issues regarding gender and sexuality. Of course, that's not quite how it turned out. The traditional plan did pass, which essentially doubled down on the stand from the 72 General Conference that, quote, homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. But it passed by a very narrow margin. If 27 or 28 votes had gone the other way among hundreds of votes, a very different result would have come out. And even those who supported the traditional plan walked away disappointed because several key provisions that would have added enforcement to the traditional plan never came up for a vote. The general conference just ran out of time. So, of course, we've been talking about this ever since. And some of those who supported the traditional plan have formed a new Methodist denomination called the Global Methodist Church. That denomination officially began on May 1, 2022. Churches across the country and the world are discerning their paths forward. Now, I'm the son of a United Methodist pastor, and I'm a licensed local pastor in the United Methodist Church myself. I'm a lifelong Methodist, been a United Methodist ever since it became the United Methodist Church, and the thought of our church going through this just breaks my heart. So as we all look at our paths forward, let's at least look at how we got here. And to do that, I need to introduce you to two men, Russell Kibler of Farmersburg, Indiana, and Donald J. Hand of Universal City, Texas. We also need to talk a little bit about what a general conference is and how the United Methodist Church came to this point. So let's start there. The General Conference of the United Methodist Church meets every four years, or at least it did before COVID. Representatives come from all around the world representing all of the smaller annual conferences with clergy and lay members alike, coming to discuss the major issues affecting our denomination. As part of that, they look at some key documents that can only be changed at a general conference. One is the Book of Discipline that essentially tells how we're organized, how we do things. Another is our book of social principles, which tells who we are and what we believe and how we stand on a variety of issues. Now, I've probably oversimplified both of those books, but for today's purposes, that'll do. It was in 1968 that the United Methodist Church was formed. The Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren came together to form this new denomination. They had similar histories and similar theologies. But what we didn't have in 1968 was a unified set of social principles. So they established the Social Principles Study Commission. That commission was to spend the next four years, from 1968 to 1972, 
Coming up with a proposed set of social principles for the delegates at the 72 General Conference to review, discuss, amend, and approve. They had a lot to do during those four years, and a lot was going on in the world. 1968 was the height of the Civil Rights Movement. It's the year that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. In politics, Robert Kennedy was assassinated on the very night that he had gained just enough delegates to have won the Democratic nomination for president. 1968 was also the height of the Vietnam War. The debate over that war was tearing the country apart. In 1969 was Woodstock, a cultural watermark with the height of the free love movement, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it obviously created a lot of discussion in society in general. And 1969 was also the year of Stonewall, which sparked the gay activist movement. This Social Principles Study Commission had a lot to go over, a lot to consider, but eventually they put together their proposal. They sent advanced copies out to the delegates who would be attending the 1972 General Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, so they could review it and be ready to comment, possibly amend, and eventually pass these social principles in one form or another. Two of these packets went to the gentleman we're talking about. One was Russell Milo Kibler. He was 74 at the time of the General Conference, a retired automobile insurance agent, he had been exceptionally active in the Methodist Church all of his life. He had married the former Jesse Parsons, and the two of them made quite the duo, providing music and leading music, not just at their church, but at much wider meetings at the sub-district and district level and beyond. Kibler was also a lay speaker, and I found a lot of press clippings from 1947 through the late 1970s where he was still active as a lay speaker and a musician. He would have been a natural choice to be elected as a delegate or alternate delegate to the General Conference, and, in fact, he was elected as a reserve delegate, as he was listed in the 1972 journal. Now, there are some conflicting accounts where he may have later been seated as a full delegate, which would have happened if someone else had not been able to participate. But nevertheless, he was on the floor of the General Conference, and he had the right to speak. He's the man who came up with the question we'll be talking about in just a moment. Another packet went to Donald J. Hand, family practice attorney in Universal City, Texas, just outside of San Antonio. Now, he was a bit of a surprise to be added to the conference. He came out of some rather raucous meetings of the 1971 Southwest Texas Annual Conference. There are a couple of accounts for this. One is an article called The Saddest Day, Gene Leggett and the Origins of the Incompatible Clause, written by Robert W. Sledge, he was one of the witnesses at that 1971 annual conference. The other was a first-hand account from Donald Hand himself, written many years later in 2014 for the United Methodist News. The controversies in 1971 centered on two pastors. One was a pastor who had entered into what today we would call a polyamorous relationship. He and his wife welcomed another woman into their home and into their marriage, and of course, it created great controversy. There was a judicial proceeding that ended with the demand that he surrender his credentials. He did so at this 1971 annual conference, bringing them down to the front of the conference on fire. He had rolled them up like a bouquet and set them on fire and left them for the conference to dispose of. Thankfully, there was someone with the presence of mind to shuffle those into a trash can and pour water from the baptismal font onto it to put out the fire and prevent a literal conflagration from happening there. Now, it was during the investigation of this first pastor 
that another pastor, Gene Leggett, who was working on that investigation and was highly respected and admired by his colleagues, told his colleagues who were working on this investigation that he was gay. He was standing up for the first pastor and felt that he needed to state publicly what he thought everyone knew privately. It was his thought that this would be no surprise that his colleagues had either been aware or at least suspected this all along. He was wrong. Gene Leggett was brought up not before a judicial proceeding, but before the 1971 annual conference with another maneuver that was similar and it had the same effect, to take away his ability to act as a pastor. He would simply not be appointed anywhere. Now, keep in mind, this was again two years after Stonewall, so there were protesters on Pastor Leggett's behalf who showed up to this Southwest Texas annual conference. There was a group that identified themselves as the Gay Liberation Front, who interrupted the proceedings with a list of ten demands, including that the church accept the authenticity of the gay lifestyle, and ended with the demand that the church cease what they called the harassment of Gene Leggett. More sessions were interrupted, including a worship service later during the conference. And it's at this point in time that Donald J. Hand, attorney at law, made the impression that later sent him to the general conference. The next part of this comes from Mr. Hand's own words in that article for the United Methodist News in 2014. Just a note before we start, be ready for this account to be very highly detailed. He said, In an evening service, two males sitting near the front section on the left side of the sanctuary stood up and berated Bishop Slater when he started a worship service. They continued to harass him regarding the disciplinary action taken against the homosexual pastor. I was seated across the sanctuary near the front on the right-hand side. I looked around the sanctuary and saw that no one was engaged in an effort to quell the disturbance. I thought, this is ridiculous. I got up, walked to the side aisle, down that aisle to the front of the church, across to the front, to the aisle on the left side to where the male stood. Like I said, folks, this is a very highly detailed by Mr. Hand. Let's go back to the account, though. He said, I told them that they were violating state law by disrupting a church service and could be prosecuted. They would not sit down. I told him that I and others in the gathering wanted to hear the bishop speak. This was also ineffective. So I moved quite near the two and in a low voice suggested. Now, I'm, I'm going to add my own inflection to this. I, I think this may be how he said it. It would be well if they would be seated and quiet. And whether he said it that way or not... It worked. They did agree and were seated and quiet. So he returned to his seat, and this caught the attention of those attending this 1971 Southwest Texas Annual Conference. As a result, they elected him as a full delegate to the upcoming General Conference of 1972. Donald Hand was getting ready for Atlanta when he received that packet from the Social Principles Study Commission. There was a section that caused him, as he later recounted, grave concern. After reading this, he knew he wanted to do something, but at the time he wasn't sure just what he would do, until struck by an idea during the debate itself at the General Conference. Here's the full text of that section of the Social Principles, ending with the part that he was concerned about. Quote, We recognize that sexuality is a good gift of God, and we believe persons may be fully human only when that gift is acknowledged and affirmed by themselves, the Church, and society. We call all persons to disciplines that lead to the fulfillment of themselves, others, and society in the stewardship of this gift. 
medical, theological, and humanistic disciplines should combine in a determined effort to understand human sexuality more completely. Although men and women are sexual beings, whether or not they are married, sex between a man and a woman is to be clearly affirmed only in the marriage bond. Sex may become exploitive within as well as outside marriage. We reject all sexual expressions which damage or destroy the humanity God has given us as birthright. And we affirm only that sexual expression which enhances that same humanity in the midst of diverse opinion as to what constitutes that enhancement. Homosexuals no less than heterosexuals are persons of sacred worth who need the ministry and guidance of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship which enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with self. Further, we insist that all persons are entitled to have their human and civil rights ensured. End quote. And that's the passage that brought everyone to Atlanta in 1972. So we're moving now to the Civic Center in Atlanta on the 10th day of the General Conference of the United Methodist Church. It's Wednesday, April 26th at the morning session. Bishop Eugene Slater opens the proceedings. Those at the conference sang O for a Thousand Tongues, they had some devotions read, and various committees presented their reports without really any controversy. Now, stay with us, there's a lot of formality to the proceedings of any general conference, and I'd like to give you a sense on how different the early proceedings were prior to this big debate that was to come, even on some surprising topics. First, the Committee on Courtesies and Privileges recommended that Dwight Crane be allowed to present a resolution settling an issue regarding a parsonage for a church that had closed. His presentation, however, was interrupted by the appearance of then-Governor of Georgia and future President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Carter addressed the conference noting that he had been asked how he as a Baptist felt being in the minority of the proceedings. He joked that he was always in the minority as both his mother and wife were Methodist. You get the idea. The day was going swimmingly well. No real controversy, no problems at all, other than poor Mr. Crane having to enter his remarks into the journal directly instead of getting to speak after being interrupted by the governor. Eventually that morning, though, we have the Legislative Committee on Christian Social Concerns Report Number 14, Calendar Number 444. Ed Salamons of Northern Illinois, Chairman of the Committee, presented the report which came from the work of the Social Principles Study Commission. Ammons introduced Robert W. Moon, chair of the subcommittee that worked on the commission's report for the Legislative Committee on Christian Social Concerns. And yes, that's a lot of committees. There was and is a lot of bureaucracy involved in the official workings of any major denomination, including the United Methodist Church. The point here, though, is that we have now gotten to Robert W. Moon, who is referred to alternatively as Mr. Moon and Dr. Moon in various parts of the journal for the 1972 General Conference. He presented the committee report, and there was some discussion on a variety of topics. One was abortion. Uh, this was a full year before Roe v. Wade. The Church took the stand in their social principles proposal that a decision concerning abortion should be made after thorough and thoughtful consideration by the parties involved with medical and pastoral counsel, and it took the stand with an amendment that abortion should be removed from the criminal code. Surprisingly, considering today's debate on this issue, it didn't create a major stir, at least not according to the Journal of the Conference. But we've finally gotten to the big debate. It's at this point 
that we meet Russell Milo Kibler, representing the South Indiana Conference. He came to the microphone to ask a question, and he said, quote, I want to ask a question, and I may want to make an amendment. At the top of the page having to do with homosexuals, we have a statement there at the close of that paragraph, quote, further we insist that homosexuals are entitled to have their human and civil rights insured, end quote. My question is, what do we mean by this? That simple question started the debate that we still talk about today. Dr. Moon replied that this was an attempt to affirm our concern that some homosexuals are not allowed to keep their positions once it's discovered that they are homosexuals. They lose the right to employment in some places. This seems unjust and a violation of a natural right that is theirs. In other words, this was an anti-discrimination resolution rather than a recognition of same-sex marriage or gay pastors. So I'm guessing that right up to this moment in time, Dr. Moon anticipated that this would not create any major issue. As we know now, and as Dr. Moon was about to find out, this was absolutely not the case. Mr. Kibler continued, I think I'll make a motion. I move you, sir, that we delete that sentence. Further, we insist that homosexuals are entitled to have their human and civil rights insured. If I get a second, I'll tell you why. After he spoke in favor of his amendment, the debate was really and truly on, with statements trying to amend this in one direction or the other. Carlton Dodge of Eastern Pennsylvania moved to amend the motion to delete the last two sentences, including the sentence that homosexuals no less than heterosexuals are persons of sacred worth. Marvin Boyd of Northwest Texas tried a different approach, proposing that the words all persons be substituted for the word homosexuals. Now, during this time, the debate must have been getting rather heated as the journal notes that as a matter of privilege, Marshall C. Helty of the Pacific Northwest Conference requested that persons refrain from applauding statements made in debate. And, of course, this request itself elicited applause. It sounds like the debate was getting raucous, and it sounds a lot like the debates that have happened ever since, including at the Special General Conference of 2019. C.W. Hancock of South Georgia asked a question that could have been a bit of a trap, but I have to tell you, looking back at the full transcript of this, I'm not sure whose side he was on, and you'll hear some things from Mr. Hancock that go in both directions. He started out with, My question is directed to the committee. I'd like to know if it's the interpreted mind of the committee that in this report they have presented to us that they are saying that homosexuality is a normal and acceptable expression of sexuality in our society. Now, here was the trap of the question. If Dr. Mooney replied no, he risked losing much of the support for the original proposal. And if he said yes, he also had the risk of losing votes from other groups attending. So he took a middle road and answered, I have a feeling that the general conference itself would not want to say that. If you were going to say that what is normal is practiced by a majority of people, and then you read Dr. Kinsey's book, that was the Kinsey report on human sexuality that had been highly controversial in the 1940s and 50s. So he continues, And you realize that many things are described as normal which you and I would be unwilling to support, so I think that we were not trying to answer that question at all by the statement. Mr. Hancock pressed the issue further, and Dr. Moon replied, We are not trying to answer the question as to the normality of homosexuality. We did not produce that kind of a document. Mr. Hancock then noted, we are to assume that this is addressing itself to a real relevant point in our society then from this committee, to which Dr. Moon stated, that's right. 
Now, the Journal of the 1972 General Conference is not a complete word-by-word -word transcript. It has several of the highlights, but it doesn't give you every bit of the back and forth of the debate. So, it's at this point that we find Dr. Boone addressing some of the arguments that were made from the floor, but had not been previously included in the journal. I'm including them here to give you a, a sense of where the debate was going. Make of these what you will. He said, I'd like to respond in part to some of the comments that were made. We, too, are concerned about the kidnapping of young boys and the kidnapping of a 14-year-old and things like this. But I want to remind the conference that things like this are really not before us now. We know that girls, young girls, are kidnapped by heterosexual males, and the evidence suggests that violent sexual crimes are excessive in proportion among heterosexuals, between heterosexuals and homosexuals, even in proportion to the numbers that are there in our midst. He went on to say, One of those who spoke in favor of the amendments was greatly concerned about illegitimate children. It would be a very rare thing if there was an illegitimate child as a result of a homosexual contact. We think that this general conference has come a long way, and so has our society in recent years in understanding the nature of sexuality in ourselves and in others. It seems to us, as we have surveyed the situation, that this is exactly the kind of a statement that the general conference ought to be making at this time. We did not develop this, as one of the speakers suggested, as a result of hearing a homosexual speak to us. There were homosexuals with us this week, as you know, but the framework for this statement was shaped by the committee that studied the social principles over several years. It is not anything that comes to us hurriedly or as the result of a plea made by a homosexual himself. It represents the honest concerns of well-informed people. Now, Dr. Boone and Dr. Moon may have thought this was going to be the final statement on the subject, but the debate continued. Victor C. Vinloin from the Northwest Philippines proposed an amendment to add the statement we do not recommend marriage between two persons of the same sex. That amendment did not pass in 1972. However, it's at this point in the debate that Donald J. Hand of Southwest Texas makes his stand at the General Conference. As he stated in his 2014 article for the United Methodist News, quote, There had been about two hours of debate over the merits of the proposed paragraph 72C with no consensus. I listened and studied every aspect of this proposal with no major constructive thought crossing my mind. My attention kept returning to the last sentence, and I concluded that this might be the only place that would afford opportunity to resolve the issue. Suddenly, a proposal complete with punctuation hit me. Change the period to a comma, add the words, Though we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian doctrine. Yeah, we're not quite there to the final wording, but we're getting there close. Hang in there with us for just a little bit more. Mr. Hand added, I wrote this idea down as required for presentation to the presiding officer, showed it to my friend Tom Reevely, then a justice on the Supreme Court of Texas, and asked him what he thought about it. Justice Reevely, like many members of the assembly, was not very confident that anything presented would get us out of the deadlock. He said, I think it will provide the language needed to bring acceptance to the matter before us, but I doubt it will pass. But maybe you should try it. Now, the time was at hand, pardon the pun, for the morning session to end, but the chair extended the time to allow this morning session to continue. Hamill Ships of Southern New Jersey offered a much more strongly worded substitute, but it was eventually defeated in favor of Mr. Hand's proposal. And, of course, it doesn't end there. A motion to reconsider was introduced and adopted, pushing the matter to the afternoon session. 
So we are back after lunch, and after some pre-planned business like the first and second ballots for the Judicial Council members, we came back to the report of the Social Principles Study Commission. Before coming back to the big debate, they talked about the section on divorce. And then Dr. Moon asked permission of the conference to amend Donald Hand's phrase, changing Christian doctrine, to the now more familiar and debated, incompatible with Christian teaching. This was adopted, and the discussion went on to other areas of the Social Principles Report, apparently without much controversy, certainly not with such a heated level of debate. And that's how we got here. We've had this debated at almost every general conference since, and we are certain to revisit the topic in 2024, if indeed we are able to hold a general conference by then because of COVID. As for the two gentlemen in our story... Russell Kibler went back home to southern Indiana and continued to be highly active through at least the late 1970s. He passed away in 1988 at the age of 90 while living in a Methodist home. As to whether or not Donald J. Hand may still be with us, that's not clear from my research. We do know that the Texas Bar listed him as no longer being active in practice, although his professional corporation was still in business the last time I checked a couple of years back, presumably manned by other attorneys. In 2014, he was asked to write for the United Methodist News and gave his full account, which we've been quoting quite liberally here. It included his belief that he had saved the Methodist Church at that time. As for what has happened since, subsequent general conferences have added statements that banned same-sex weddings and self-avowed practicing homosexuals from being ordained or appointed to a church. A ban was also added regarding United Methodist funds being used to support gay activist organizations or in any way promoting a, quote, homosexual agenda. Now, there are some notable cases of those challenging these rules, but they remain in place as the official stand of the United Methodist Church even to today. Since the 2019 special called General Conference did not end the debate, Representatives from a variety of groups came together to develop something that became known as a Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation. This would have allowed traditionalists to break away while retaining church property and would have given some $25 million to get them started as a new denomination. There would have been continued joint efforts in outreach and support to people in need across the world. There were people involved in the development of this protocol that came from just about all points of view, from the Wesleyan Covenant Association that would later establish the Global Methodist Church, from the Reconciling Ministries Network, a progressive organization in favor of removing the bans related to sexuality and gender, and many others in between those points of view. This protocol was announced in a press release on January 3, 2020, with the intent to present it to the 2020 General Conference of the United Methodist Church. Of course, COVID stepped in not long after this announcement, and we have not been able to convene a General Conference since. As a result, some of those favoring the traditional plan moved forward with the establishment of a new denomination on May 1, 2022. The protocol that would have been presented to the 2020 General Conference fell apart soon after, as others pulled away from that agreement. And that brings us up to today, at least up to the time of this podcast being recorded. The history of Methodism is still being written, and what happens now will be remembered for many years to come. Hopefully, this podcast has given you a better perspective on how we got here. As to what happens next, that's up to you as much as anyone. 
As I said at the start of this podcast, the thought of all this happening to the United Methodist Church just breaks my heart. Still, this debate continues. So I hope you will use this as a starting point. There is so much more to know, and there are so many things to consider in any path we may take. In the meantime, I'll keep you all in my prayers, and I hope you will do the same for me and for our church. Thank you for listening to The Untidy Methodist. Thank you for listening to The Untidy Methodist. This special edition podcast is a production of The Untidy Methodist and is not authorized by nor does it represent an official stand of the United Methodist Church. You can find our free podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Facebook, CastBox, and Podcast Addict. Please like, subscribe, share, follow, and tell a friend. You can find an archive of all our devotional podcasts at theuntidymethodist.org. Your comments, your suggestions, and most of all, your prayers are most welcome.